Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Twin Cities by Night and our third story arc, Dread. Dread is set in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul in the hot and humid summer of 2011. Join us again and continue to follow the journey of Katow, played by Quinn, and William, played by Slavic, as they continue to traverse the dark society held within the Twin Cities. They will be joined by three new kindred, Warren, a Tremere, played by Adam, Valentine, a Nosferatu, played by Alex, and Lenny, a Nosferatu, played by Andrew. The quarter will find themselves joined together by a sense of dread. If you would like to contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at twin underscore cities underscore VTM or Facebook at Twin Cities by Night. We hope you enjoy. For those of you who are listening to the podcast chapters, Slavic will not be with us today. So the next three chapters you'll be listening to will not have the character of William. Please don't think I'm ignoring him. We all love William. He just couldn't make it today. Katal, we left off where you and William were standing on the steps outside of the small house that the Putinesca brothers had resided in. You both are currently staring at the rain right now that started to fall while you're inside the house. It's coming pretty heavy. Those clouds that have kind of been burdening the city with humidity and moisture finally ripped open with torrents of rain. And you see William start walking through the rain, through the grass towards his beamer. And you hear the ching as he unlocks the car with his key. And he opens the door and gets in and, and starts it. After you get into the car, What's going on in your mind right now after these events that just, you know, happened that just transpired within the Putinesca brothers' house? So he's he's somewhat glad that he didn't they didn't actually have to resort to serious violence to get information out of the Putinesca brothers because as much as Kaitao is determined in wanting to settle this matter, he doesn't want to you know just lose himself to the beast any more than he already has because he's recently he's been like sort of the sho- like been shocked a little you know, looked at himself in the mirror for a little kind of metaphorically and just like, I'm not sure I like what I'm seeing. And so he's now, he's trying to find a balance between actually, you know, you know, being aggressive and getting what he wants and not actually, not just going, they're just giving into the beast completely. I would almost argue that I saw Katal feeding the beast a little bit in that scene. A little, uh, so we're trying to feel like, you know, fi- feed a little bit, but not give in completely to it. Exactly. Because the Katal of like, of negligence and homecoming wasn't very comfortable in situations like this, you know, and usually kind of looked down at Jonathan Chase and William whenever they were in situations like this. But now you're a pretty large factor in not only getting two people to kind of spill the beans, but getting two people who are in a way supernaturally loyal to a cause to spill the beans to the point where they pretty much put their life at risk right now, you know, and, and thus they're pleased to you. For, for them not to have to tell you. So after you found out all this information, like what's going on in your head with that? Like how are you processing that information? You know, we know now that, you know, obviously you're having issues with the beast, but yeah, like what's, what, what's this information doing in your head? So now he's thinking that with, now that he knows that there's something with like the little and his gang from, you remember he, hearing a little bit about them all the way back at the beginning of this whole thing. He's thinking, well, actually, I know where he lives. I, I remember looking into that a while ago. And now he's trying to figure out just 
you know, just how do I actually go about doing this? Because he doesn't, he just knows the location, doesn't know anything else about that. I'm trying to see, like, see, look, look at all his uh, allies and acquaintances for now, just see, like, okay, so how can we do this without just evolving into this mess? Yeah, because way back, you know, you had your contact look at information on Little is actually kind of a task that Jonathan had given you, you know, and you were able to find out that he lived in these projects called the Echo Projects that are in northern Minneapolis that are kind of really ominous in the way that they kind of stand out in the northern part of Minneapolis there where like the northern part is predominantly known for having lower class African Americans and the crime that comes along with it. But these Echo projects are 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 four like towers in a way like these these it's like um a beacon a lighthouse that's in the middle of the ghetto there that people know that there are even like rumors you know not like everyone knows but there are rumors that some cops are even afraid to go there unless they're backed up you know by by a large amount of people or especially at night just because of the sheer number of masses and and cops are known to tread lightly there you know, because of, of just the, the, like I said, the sheer numbers. So you are in the car, you're in this Beamer that William drives, cutting through the rain. You hear the windshield wipers, you know, as they go back and forth over it. You notice that, like, William is oddly quiet. And there's a moment, like, where you look at the, out of the corner of your eyes, you know, kind of in your peripheral vision, you see William drive. And just, like, the lights from the street lights and, like, the overhead lamps are on the road that reflects off the water of the hood just in an odd way makes his pallor his color of his skin even even come out more like how pale it is now with his loss in humanity it's almost like these colors like the greens the reds the yellows reflect off him like a cinema screen and and there's in a moment there's a moment where you look and i assume you're taken aback because it just his skin is so pale now and not only that but like his 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 cheekbones are so much more gaunt and he has like these bags under his eyes that you know, during your mortal days of, of being up a couple of nights or something like that, you get bags or being tired and not get enough sleep. And, and they just seem permanent under his skin. And you can even see like on the top of his lip and like the bottom part of his lip, like like the, the shapes of his teeth. You know what I mean? They seem like there's a thin veneer now between his lips and his teeth. And that makes him even stand out more. And he as he's like focused more on that, too, you, you notice not only is his appearance like his physical body appearance like that but his upkeep seems to have changed too where before this was a man who was genuinely concerned about appearing to be a vast wealth and 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 be you know where these clothes are finally tailored and, and his hair was perfectly combed and the whole facade of being human and now it seems to have slipped and he seems to have an intensity and he doesn't speak to you while you drive and the drive pretty much ends up back at the park where you two had met Lenny and Lenny had given you guys information on the Putinesca brothers. He just slowly park, you know, pulls next to your Toyota Corolla there and he unlocks the doors and he says, I'll call you tomorrow. All right. Got stuff to do. Yes. All right. And, and you see when he stares at you, when he says yes, and you say, all right, the mannerisms of, of normal human interaction don't seem to come from him anymore. You know, the politeness of not staring at someone after you tell them something, you know, knowing that they'll probably get out of your car, you know, is not there. You know, he just simply looks at you until you leave. 
Like he doesn't blink, but it's not a threatening way. He's not trying to like, it's not some unspoken communication between you and him. Like ways I get out of my fucking car. It's more, he just doesn't have those mannerisms in him anymore. They're slowly slipping away as he's being consumed by, by, by the beast, you know, and by something greater than both of you. So he pulls out and speeds out and you're left alone in this rain. What are you doing? I'm going to head into my car. Then I'm going to put my phone and call, uh, the other, the only other kangaroo left in the city. Look, Cal. Hey, I'm calling cause, well, I'm finding out some stuff, and I want to make keep catch up with you, cause, like you said before, we gotta work together on this. We gotta keep, we gotta keep each other in, uh, keep each other appraised of what's going on. Yeah, of course. Where do you want to meet? Uh, I don't know. Wherever you feel, wherever you feel is fine. Let's just meet in front of your apartment. How about that? That's fine. Okay. I'll be on the one here anyway. Okay. Yeah. I'll meet you there. All right. I'll be there in about 15 minutes. Okay. Gotcha. So as you drive your car through the rain to, to this apartment, it's pretty uneventful. You know, your, your car kind of cuts through these streets. You kind of feel this sense of, I don't know, like how does Katal feel whenever he comes to his haven? Is it like a territorial feeling or is it just a feeling of escape or, or what is it? I guess it's more like a, um, it's, it's almost like it's his place. And so that even though like it's, it's, it's much more, it's like something, you know, this place is mine and that there, it gives him gives some amount of comfort to it, but like, it's not like he's like when his uh, sire died bugs, he's like, but it's not impenetrable. And so it's sort of like, it, it's not as secure as it once was, but it is like more of a, I, I never really know how to say it, I guess. In a way, not only is it your haven, but it's like a, a reminder, a memorial to your sire. I you guess, know, what, yeah. he, what he sacrificed for. Because easily you could have fled and tried to find a new haven, but yet you're still there, you know. And every time you walk through that hallway or whatever to get to your apartments, inside your apartment, you know, you're walking through the same hallway that you saw him make the ultimate sacrifice for, you know. where, gotcha. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. So... As you pull in, as you drive in front of the apartment, because the parking is on the side, you see Annabelle standing underneath the overhead that is over the front, you know, door of this apartment complex that you have to go into. This apart, this this door, matter of fact, doesn't have like a window. That's how cheap the apartments you live in. It's just like this this tan painted like metal door, you know, that can be opened up. And she's just standing on the steps, and you can kind of see she recognizes your car as it drives by, and you see her like following the trajectory of your car as you park. You park and you get out and you start walking towards the steps and you see her there and she just kind of takes a seat at the top step out of the rain because of the overheads there, you know, and she kind of just motions for you to sit down next to her. I think we got a, I found a, lead, a pretty good lead on where to look for Jonathan Chase next. If, I think he might still be, he might not be dead. What, what, what's that? What, why do you, why do you think he's not dead? Cause I just talked to the, uh, I guess, I guess let's say the, so I think they the ghouls of the Giovanni, they're looking for him. And so far as they know, they'd have, they'd have, they haven't found him yet. And they're also, uh, but, and their current suspect is a, a, I guess you could say a gang guy called Little. The name's not familiar to me. I, I don't know too much about him. Do you know anything about him? Just that uh, he's you know, working out, he's working something, he's got like his gangland thing, you know, up north. Uh, and I, and I think, I remember a friend of 
one of my, uh, William, he told me that he talked to some old lady that she saw a group of African American guys go breaking into Chase's apartment before he just before he went missing. Wow. Do you have any idea why that would? I have no idea. Honestly, I was hoping if anything, you would have a better idea because, like I said, before now, I just thought this dude was just a human, didn't know anything about us. But now he's I'm... after he's apparently he's been looking into Chase. He's and he's been chasing after the thin bloods I told you about. Wow. So he might. Hmm. I don't even want to think of those possibilities. All I can tell you is I know, though, that the Venture and the Toreador are circling their wagons right now. They're not. I don't, I don't know how to put it. They're not even trying to pretend that we are one big happy community at the moment, which I guess is understandable. We don't have wagons to circle, I guess. So we don't have the, the privilege or the opportunity to act that way. But they are definitely not being as social as they were a few days ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's understandable. So it's under it's understandable. All I know, though, is that Lawrence Miller has been giving me the, the cold shoulder lately. For those of you who don't know, Lawrence Miller is the Toreador Harpy of the Twin Cities. And he was also a mentor to Ophelia. So, but yeah, he's um he he's been kind of not openly aggressive, but I've definitely sensed that his warmness, even if it ever was sincere, um, is no longer there when it comes to interactions with me. I find that to be welcome, though, to be honest with you, Katal, because I'm tired of these fuckers trying to pretend like they all want to be our friends right now. So, And I think just because of exactly that, I think we might have, we might have a, might something to help us when we do look into Little. What's that? Well... Recently, the Nos- the this guy named Lenny from the Nosferatu and this guy named Warren from the Tremere, they both basically have been said, hey, you know, trying to get in my good graces, trying to do favors for us. I think, and they both said, and I know Lenny, he could definitely get into some places un- unseen. And Warren says he's very good at finding things. So I'm thinking maybe we could find something to play those off against like competition almost to use them to like, you know, do look into this for us without actually getting either me or anyone else in danger. One thing that I can respect Lenny for was the fact that he didn't try to sugarcoat what he wanted from us. You know, he said he wanted to help. He said he had information. He was very open. Do I trust him as far as I can throw him? No, not at all. But I'll tell you what, he's better than that bitch Jenna. And her fucking games that she plays, you know, the Tremere. I don't trust that cunt. She looks like a stupid party girl who not but 10 years ago was probably doing lap dances to get drugs from people. And now for some reason, she's the face of the Tremere. And I just be careful with them. I, she doesn't sit right with me. And you can see she gets a little heated when she starts talking about her. You know, she's like, I just don't get why so many people are fucking fooled when someone will walk in a room all dolled up like that still matters. You, you know what I mean? Katal? like some of these people. She walks in a room and they want to all get under good graces like they're stuck in their old ways and that they don't understand that she's just playing the game with them and they don't see the predator. I, I don't get it, Katal. Just be careful with her. Maybe it's because people don't want to see the predator all that often. It's makes them think too much of the bad stuff. That's true. You know, Aaron, who I wish was still fucking here, and I don't fault him for leaving, but he used to give me advice a long time ago. Before, and she see you see she looks at the rain for a second. You can kind of see she's like trying hard not to tear up. You know, 
he was a part of my life before I was brought over. And he used to tell me that there's a side of all of us, even before we become part of this, who the, 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 the competitive side of us, the, the side of us that wants to gain more, the side of us that wants to see our families survive, who wants to see survive in life. That's almost like the beast. And he tell and he told me that our family, one thing, one reason why we're here and one reason why people should respect us is the fact that unlike a lot of clans, we don't ignore the beast and we learn to dance with it. And sometimes it may take that lead of that dance, but in the end we remind it it's a partner with us and it doesn't control us. And I think that's why maybe I see through her facade, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Katal, right now. I really didn't know you before all this, and I really didn't give a shit about you. And I don't want to sound mean, and I'm not trying to. But right now, I feel that we are stronger now with two than we were with four. Because I think right now, we don't have time to be selfish and, 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 and bullshit and, and to pretend we live some, you know, she motions towards like the apartment, some real life. We're surviving right now, Katal. And we got to make sure that we protect each other. And I'll continue to do that in what little way I can. It sounds like you got a lot of that under control yourself. Is there anything you need from me during all this? Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I think that from what I don't know, I don't have any, I don't I know for sure, but I think Roman Dunstern, you know, the, have you heard of him? Yeah. He's a, he's an associate of Rita Giovanni's. Yeah. I think he might have had something to do with Ophelia disappearing. I don't have any proof of that, though. I just have a a message from Ophelia the night before she died. That's it. Any reason why? Like what? Uh, we had some. We met him a few months ago, and while we didn't leave on the friendliest terms, I don't think we did anything to him that really would have warranted this reaction, though. Well, in what in like what capacity did you meet him? Uh, we, my group, we went to his house. I saw how he lives. And, well, we had a bit of a heated discussion afterwards. And But all parties left. He, uh, he's fond of children, you could say, in the worst way. You see, she just kind of like does a force, you know, intake of breath and release of breath like that. She, there's like a minute of silence where she just is looking at the rain. I've never understood sometimes the way our little society here works, you know? Yeah. You have us and different families and we all agree to play the same word, the, this play the same game, follow the same rules. You know, Aaron had no patience for that. That's why as a whip, I was always the one that was faced of the family. Uh, I, I dealt with similar things as a moral, you know, being a professor at U of M, but this really opened my eyes to a lot of things because Rita is not a member of our society. We say she is because everyone's a member of our society, even though they want to admit it or not. And they have to play by the same rules. She's always had this odd ambassador status. Like she's a special guest. She's been around here for a long time. She's been around here at least since the 40s, long before I was even born, mortally. I do know the very, very few times that I saw her and Aaron in the same room, Aaron did not hide his distaste. Yeah. And I'm thinking that 
I I know a Bruja guy. He approached me a while, just a couple of weeks, a couple of few days ago, about seeing the slight change in how things work. I figured you might want to talk to him and say about stuff about that. If we can get the Bruja in on this, we might be able to see just you know they might be upset because Ty left or something. We might be able because their things are not things are unstable right now and the more people we more groups we have on our side the more things we get more things can change in our favor yeah the proof are in similar situation as us with ty jumping ship and let me guess it was michael you spoke to huh i think so yeah yeah it was michael michael's an interesting individual because he in a way is in a similar position that i used to be with when aaron was here with him being the whip but kind of doing more of the wheeling and dealing. From my understanding, he had a lot of, he had a governmental kind of position before he was brought over in the 60s, but he is 100% fundamentally sold on the ideals of our society and the rules being followed. I'm talking about to the extent of being ultra conservative in those beliefs. Mm. And so I can very well see where he's not happy where some things are going. While we may... You know, he probably sees a lot of this stuff as a facade, and he probably sees this happy paradise that Philip tries to convince everyone that the Twin Cities is, isn't the case. And he probably thinks he has better ideas. I don't know if he's going to be so adamant, though, about expressing that now that there are only two members of his clan here, and they don't no longer have the position of the sheriff as part of their, as part of their little group. But I'll tell you this, Christopher, who is the Permagen, he is a man of very few words, but he is also a man who survived the raid of 45. No scars, from what I hear, that are on his face. It's from one of the the boogeyman that we hear brought up sometimes. Yeah. If we can sell them on the idea that we are doing this for the good of the city, I think we can bring him over. So I'll do that. I'll talk to Michael. I like Michael. He's a little too fanatic at times about the society of ours, but I think our goals align. And I think our main goal with them right now is surviving. Mm. So I'll do that. You continue looking into Little. If you need to involve those two, fine. Be weary of the Tremere. Got it. I don't know the individual, but I know Jenna. And I don't trust her, man. You know that. I know now. Okay. Be careful, Katow, seriously. I don't know what I would do. And I'm saying this sincerely. I don't know what I would do if something happened to you. I'd probably leave. All right. And she pats your knee and she gets up. Call me if you need anything, okay? Will do. And she, you see her walk through the rain as she pulls the hood of her green hoodie up over her head and makes her way through. What's going on in your mind right now? What do you plan to do? Right now, Kai Tao is thinking on just going to, he's I'm probably going to head to his own head to his own car and then scope out Little's place just to give it like a drive, drive around just to see like the overall location, like just the outside of it, just see what he can see from there. I'd say it's about 2.30 right now in the morning, okay, just to kind of, you know, to let you know. So you could probably go drive over there, spend a little time looking at it if you would like. Yeah. Okay. So you get into your car, and you start it again, and you kind of see the steam from your hood as the heat from your engine that was still, like, kind of lingered there for a little bit warms up again, and you can kind of see the steam come out. And you see, the, like, the, you know, you see the rain hitting it, but in a way, you're slapped in the face again with your current condition because he knows that like the, the steam from you, the, the lack of heat from you doesn't steam the windows on the inside like it used to. 
you know, and you're, there's a second where you're sitting there and you're thinking like, you remember having to do that with like a cheap car and sit there and using your forearm and kind of like trying to get it from the inside to where you can see. And now no longer is that an issue as you pull out the driveway and you start driving north in Minneapolis, you know, you jump on a freeway and soon as your car gets off the exit onto the freeway, you find yourself in a swarm of humanity again, as your car is traversing, you know, you're switching lanes and you're passing, you know, you can hear the water from the rain hit the inside of your wheel well as it makes that sound. You know, your stereo barely works. And then even when you do get a station in, it's not loud enough to cover the sound of like puddles and other cars causing water to, to rise up, you know, as, it, as they switch lanes. And eventually as you're driving down this freeway, you kind of see uh, maybe like two miles ahead as the freeway starts to curve to the left. You see beyond that curve, these four towers that kind of loom off in the distance you can see it through the rain because you can see like the lights of some of the apartments that are on and you can they're just this ominous figure that kind of like stand out like ancient gods you know that used to walk the earth you know and cthulhu type stories and as you driving along you see an exit that you can only guess could probably be an exit that leads towards that direction because this is a, such a landmark it's almost like a true north that you find yourself being drawn to as you get off the exit slowly and you hear like the blinker your right blinker going as you pull off and you start slowing down you're hit with like the stark reality of the fact that there are more liquor stores more pawn shops more convenience stores that are in this area than there were even in your area that wasn't you know middle class at all as you start rolling down the streets you realize that the rain is providing you ample coverage and opportunity to be able to drive in a neighborhood like this and be slow and be the hunter that you are without being noticed because most of the people who would be out on these hot summer nights you know drinking or walking about or doing god knows what are not they're seeking shelter from the rain right now and eventually as you start driving through these neighborhoods and you're still like kind of looking at these towers as like a way as a using terrain association trying to just guide your car towards that area and eventually, after like five minutes of turning random streets, you get to this rather large parking lot that's in front of one of these towers. And you kind of like pull, I take a pull on the side of the street in your car, you know, the car's still running. You're looking out your passenger or your driver's side windshield, and you're looking at this parking lot that's full of automobiles of all different makes and types. Some are ran down, probably used by single mothers with kids trying to survive, and this is the only place they can live. Some do not fit these apartments, meaning they are higher end cars with newer rims, nice paint jobs. You see the rain kind of bouncing off of them. And you see this kind of what maybe in the developmental stage of these apartment, these apartment complexes at one time was like a courtyard, but now is like dead grass. That's just becoming mud with this rain. You see like there's this picnic area where there's like four picnic benches in the front with like a grill that is rusted and just looks like it hasn't been used in forever but you see these lights that are coming from within and you see like people who are kind of still standing in the rain but they got like you know rain slickers on or they got like hoodies on and you can kind of like realize just how large this apartment building is you know this is almost like a skyscraper in a way but an apartment complex you look up and you count maybe like 15 stories you know 15 to 20 stories and you just get the sense of life from within and you can kind of see on the left and the right side of this one apartment 
building of this of these projects you kind of see like in the back you imagine there's a courtyard a huge courtyard in the back and you see like people just walking from front to the back you know different sizes this place is lively this is not a place that is quiet this is not a place where the dead rest this is a place where danger lurks where people live where it's a constant sea of poverty that 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 the tides just constantly swarm around these four large buildings what are you doing while you sit there okay so first of all i want to see just like is like all other like i see the people standing outside are they like guarding the place or are they just standing there you get the sense while you're watching there like i don't want to use the term guarding because that has kind of like a you know like they're standing there no ye shall not pass kind of thing but they are definitely there with a purpose you know, and as you're watching, like you see like three or four of them are kind of standing there. And as you're watching one, right, you're kind of like trying to make sense head heads or tails of the situation. Right. And you see these because there's two double glass doors on two ends of this building, you know, and you see one of them, the double doors pop open and you see this African-American lady. She comes walking out. She has like her hair up in a bun, but she has like these really short shorts on and has like this wife beater shirt on. She has this crying child like that could probably be two years or under on her arm. Like she's holding her on her hip and you see her walk up to one of these guys who are standing with a hoodie on over their head, you know, and she's like sitting there. You could tell there's like a very like, very tense discussion going on just by their body language, you know, and you see like the guy turn around and he's like, he's ignoring her, you know, like he's, and she's see her just kind of like has one baby on there. She's moving her other hand around and she's just like, you can tell she's kind of screaming at him and he turns around and you see him like get in her face, like look down, like he's about to like do something to her and you see him yelling at her. Then finally she like looks up at the sky and then she reaches in the back of her, her shorts pockets and you see her pull out what you can only imagine could be like a folded amount of money. And you see her hand it to him and you see the guy reach into his hoodie and he like hands her a little something in return. And she turns around and walks back into the apartment complex. So while you're standing there watching this, you figure that they're probably dealers that are standing there that are pushing some kind of product at this time, you know, gotcha. it, and but it's really hard to hear, like I said, because the rain, you know, is going on around the car. But you're able to see that through your, like I said, your driver's side window. All right. So is that the so the buildings like are they uh, there's this courtyard in the center of these buildings or is it like in front of them? The, the, yeah, this is in front of one, but you can imagine there's a courtyard in the back because you see people walking. You know what I mean from the sides of this one building that you're facing. Just imagine right now, like you're facing one of these buildings that there's four more like that, and so they're just gonna form a square. And in the back of all these buildings, you can only imagine that there's more, you know what I mean? That's back there. You can't see oh, from where gotcha. you're at, but yeah, definitely. I mean, if I was to guess, I mean, I guess I can make up the number because I'm the storyteller, right? But if I was to guess, I would say there's like hundreds of people who live here. You know what I mean? Like I, there's 15 floors. You could say there's probably like 15 apartments each that can fit a family. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah there's a good amount of people here like that's what i was saying like this is like the sea of life here this is like it's an organism of its own almost you know like you're sitting here watching and, and i this isn't like when you were when you were in that situation where you had to feed this isn't middle class this isn't even like you know lower middle class neighborhood this is different this follows its own rules this is something that's really alien to you at this time too because while you were definitely riding the poverty line you know, you weren't part of the African-American culture, you know, in the Twin Cities at all. So, like, this is, you're sitting there watching out this window, and this is something that is, is a, it's a new puzzle, you know? It's a new thing for you to figure out at this moment. 
Yeah, and definitely Kaitel would just sort of sit there for a moment, just looking at just at the craziness of it before he decides, yeah, I can't try anything on my own tonight. It's too crowded. Gonna have to head back and then see what the others can do. Okay, I'll say by the time that you head back, that it'd be probably be time to like call it a night and then you know you can reach out to them the next day. Yeah, I'll do that. So Warren, you two are driving through this rain, but this time you're being driven. Jenna is driving you back to the Chantry by St. Catherine University. She really has nothing to say to you at the moment, you know. She spoke her piece as she's driving to Grand Cherokee with you in the passenger seat there. You get in front, you know, you well, you start making your way through this neighborhood that's outside of St. Catherine University. And you can kind of see like the rain is hitting these rather large houses. You know, you can see the gutters like because you start going uphill a little bit and you can see like rain going through the side curbs, you know, making little streams. And eventually she pulls in front of the chantry and the car is still on. She actually has the windows cracked. You can smell the the, the distinct smell that a, a dry s- sidewalk will make when the rain releases it, you know, from the heat that's been having to suffer. And you can smell that come through the, the driver's side window that she cracked open. And she turns and looks at you and, and you can barely make out her facial features because she's being radiated by like the inside council of the car, by that neon light of the radio dial that tells the time. And you can kind of see like the times like one thirty in the morning right now. And she's like, Warren, you need to do something for us tomorrow. What's that? You're going to pick up two individuals and bring them to the ta- the chantry. And when you pick them up, you're going to make sure that you're not followed by anyone. We need this to be on the down low. Who am I picking up? You're going to be picking up And you see for a second. She looks out in front of her and then she looks back at you and she's like, you're going to be picking up Adam Carter and Star. They are of Clan Melkavian. And you recognize the name Adam Carter. You know he's the primogen of Clan Melkavian. I can almost picture that Warren has like a mental dossier, probably of like the kinder that he know that he has heard of or known about. But the the name Star hasn't. It doesn't ring any kind of bell to you. Why are we bringing Malkavians into the chantry? And you see a moment when you say that. You know, you see her hand grip the wheel, and she turns and looks at you, and you see this intensity in her eyes. Are you questioning me, Warren? No, Jenna, I'm questioning the security risk. You see her nod her head. Okay. That's my job. I understand, Warren. I was about to say, it'd be very rude of you after what I just did for you, for you to question what I am passing you. But if that's not the case, I understand, Warren. This is paramount to the success of the family. This is something that Cynthia wants done. I'm simply relaying orders. You need to make sure that they're not followed and you'll meet them at this location. And she hands you like a little piece of paper and you open it up, you look at a street corner, random street corner in downtown Minneapolis. You need to make sure that they're not being followed and you need to bring them into the chantry. And from there, you'll sit and wait until we are done with them and then you'll drive them back. Very well. Warren, if you do this and you do a good job, I think you're, you'll bring favor to yourself. And Cynthia... She won't know about what happened. This is our little secret, okay? Okay. What I at this is Cynthia giving you an order, by the way. This is not me. I agree with you. I think I don't I don't get it. 
I don't understand why, but I'm following orders too, okay? Okay. You're, you're not alone. You're not alone with the confusion sometimes. But we always have to remember the family. And we always have to remember sometimes we are asked to do things for the family's greater good. And we might not see the results of that. And we might not see the reasons of that. But people like you and I and others are the reason why the family is as strong as it is. Okay? I am aware of my responsibilities to the family. And part of those responsibilities is that nothing negative will befall the Shantry. So I need to be paranoid about certain things. And having lunatics within our sanctum is one of those things that I need to be paranoid about. I understand your paranoia. You know, I have found in my interactions that sometimes stereotypes are wrong. Let's not go judging these people. But you continue to be paranoid and you make sure that we're safe. That's why you're here, right? In theory. Exactly. And I know you won't fail me. So go no, get I won't. Go get some rest and do what you must tomorrow. Meet them there tomorrow at eight in the evening. Pick them up, bring them here, make sure they're not followed. You understand? I understand. You have a good evening, Warren. I hope you got that out of your system, okay? Let's not have something like this happen again. I'll try to avoid it in the future, or at least direct my emotions in a more productive fashion. Yeah, like what I asked you to do for me. Of course. Understood. Thank you for helping me, Jenna. No, no, no worries. And just remember this. That Duncern guy is a huge piece of shit. What, what he's done to a bunch of people, and you don't need to know about it right now, we'll come back to him by your actions, okay? Where does he like to hang out? A house of his. But you contact that Catal guy, and you contact William. You get that information from them. You build that relationship, okay? Okay. All right. You have a good night. You as well, Jenna. And Warren will get out of the vehicle and walk into the chantry. All right. Is there anything that you would like Warren to do before he calls it a night? How much time is left until sunrise? I would say um, uh, about four hours. All right. He'll uh, do a quick check of the chantry security when he's assured that everything is in order. He's going to go up to his room, lay down on his bed, stab himself in the guts, and Ash will project. All right. So let's go ahead and look up astral projection real quick before we get into the whole, you know, stabbing in the guts thing. And so let's see. Journeying into astral form requires a player to expend a point of willpower and make a perception and a cult roll. Difficulty varies depending on the complexity of the tended trip. Seven is average and ten reflecting the trip. Far from familiar territory. So where are you trying to go? Let me, tell me that first. First stop is going to be a particular bookstore in town. Ah, okay. You're going to go check out your dates bookstore? Yes. Okay. And is there anything else you're planning to do or no? Um, after he checks out the bookstore to see if she's there, he will zip over to the address that Jenna gave him to sort of pre-scout the area that he's picking the Malkavians up from tomorrow. Spend a will PowerPoint, enroll the occult and perception. Uh, we'll say difficulty eight. You haven't been to the bookshop, but you, you know what I mean? You know where it's at. It's not too familiar. So go, go ahead and do that. Zero successes. Zero successes. Okay. And yes. then for the second one, let's go ahead and spend a will PowerPoint again. 
And this time, I'll, it's a familiar place. It's just two cross streets. It will do difficulty six. And a botch. Before I go with the scene, and, and this is good, because this is something that I wanted to do in the story, and you just kind of put it in my hands. So you, when you talk about stabbing yourself, are you talking about like with a knife? Are you talking about, are you just talking about like cutting yourself like a cutter? Are you talking about like what exactly are we talking He'll... about with stabbing? He's Tremere, so he'll have some sort of ritual knife that he uses specifically for this. You know, gems and... Not like a large knife, but more like a, a decorative knife, but kind of has like a... Like a... like Kind of like the shape of a letter opener in a way. Am, am I correct in that? Thinking that way? Or are you thinking something different? Something a bit bigger. Something that can be used practically in combat as well as serve as a ritual implement. Yeah, but with you, it's a ritual implement, definitely. Because, yeah, I got you. We don't have swords in Twin Seas by night. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, so you go and lay down in your bed. And it's quiet in your room. You can hear after you've done, you know, this is after you've done your checks. But you can hear through the walls of your room this grandfather clock. It's silently counting off seconds. Tick, tock, tick talk and you're laying in this bed and you have this like little knife sword type thing it comes from a time before you're probably on this earth you don't know you know at one point cynthia gave it to you because there was a time when she had to torture you to get you to tap into your potential but then there came a moment where she gave it to you you know 30 40 50 years ago and told you that now you can it's expected for you to do it upon yourself you probably didn't ask the story behind what she gave you. You probably don't even know if she knows the story behind what she gave you. It's one of those symbols of this family you're part of. You know, you, you keep hearing this talk about this family of Tremere, of this clan, something that in your very essence of your spirit and your soul and your determination and drive, you feel a servant to. I would almost say like those in the dark ages who served the Holy Church who knew in their essence that the Holy Church was real, that the Holy Trinity was real, that Jesus was the Savior, that the Crusades had to happen. And you feel that way because right now, the Tremere to you are almost like a religion. You know, you have never met any other Tremere other than the three who reside in the city. Vienna, what's Vienna? You've never been to Vienna. You probably never will go to Vienna. But you keep hearing this talk about the family and the good of the family and how you are all of one body, just like the Church of Christ. You all serve the one purpose. And you're laying in bed there with this dagger sword next to you. Now, before I continue on with the scene, at that moment before you start stabbing yourself in the stomach, like what emotions is going on are right now in your head? Uh, there's going to be a mix of emotions in Warren's head. One part of it is his despair at having missed his date and his frustration as to why he missed his date. There's also a bit of concern for the way that Jenna was speaking to him. He sees some of Cynthia reflected in that, and he's wondering if that's going to be an issue moving forward. There's also a little bit of concern over having crazy people with psychic powers inside of the Chantry uh, the, the following evening. Now, is there any apprehension before you stab yourself? You know, is there a moment, like a, a moment where, I mean, this is still, I, mean, I know you probably have done this before, meaning Warren, 
but is there always that moment that like one second like where that where that where your both hands you have that knife gripped on the hilt you know and you're laying in bed and you're hearing this tick tock tick tock and you have the knife over your abdomen is there a moment of hesitation before you slam it down the first instant where he feels the pressure from the blade on his skin there's going to be that sharp sense of self-preservation but he's done this so many times and he has so little self left to preserve in a lot of ways that it's the barest flicker of self-preservation at that very moment you slam the knife into your abdominal area and against your own will you scream out a little bit because no matter how alien you may be to the man that you were 60 years ago or how alien you may be to a man period right now you still are grasped that humanity and that still brings out pain and and those nerves that are dead normally still communicate to your brain and you do it once and you just feel like you your eyes shut and you can just feel this wetness like like splash against your stomach and you like close your eyes and you lift it again you're just like slam it into your abdominal again and you just grunt and then you do it lift it out again and you slam it in there and you just grunt and you're almost like the third time when you grunt you almost cry out like and like a, a child will cry out for his mother you're probably crying out right now for your life you used, you used to have like when you're doing that you see visions of your old wife like come through your head and your son and all, all that life that was ripped away from you by your impulsiveness by your by you not being able to control your your hormones by running off with a monster and having an affair with her and being dragged into this dark existence of yours and you keep thinking that as you slamming this knife over and over again into your stomach you can feel this moisture just riding down the sides of your stomach as it's collecting underneath the like your back and on these sheets and then you keep slamming it and you're soon your your mind like like your mind takes over your body's this mechanical unit that is working on its own by like the the dark magic that keeps it alive right now is taking over and it's just slamming this knife into your stomach and there comes a moment where the ticking of this talk and that knife that is entering into you just seems to go and sink and in cadence and the visions of your lost life stop sliding across your eyes and you feel this tug this instinctual tug that is coming from within your chest like a breath that finally wants to make its last way out to join the consensus of this world to give up on your body and there's a, a fleeing glimpse, the apprehension that you had before that knife pierced your skin is right now consuming your soul because you feel it leaving. And there comes a moment where like it starts slipping from your body and your eyes start rolling back in your head and everything turns black. And there's a moment where you feel yourself being uplifted and that blackness starts disappearing for a second. And you see your body down on the on the bed and you're above it and you feel yourself floating up and you see your arms moving constantly but your eyes are rolled back and it's almost like you want to tell your body to stop that no longer needs to keep stabbing itself in the stomach like that but still moving and soon you find yourself like coming through the ceiling of this chantry and at first you're filled with a sense of joy and this is something that usually happens when you do this because you feel free. You feel like instinctually free. Like it's odd when you're up here because the burdens of the world down there are no longer tied to you. They're not an anchor to you anymore. And it's a it's a sense of joy that you have not felt in centuries or in decades. It, and as you start rising up more, and it's not even like a body that's rising up, mind you. 
you know, you're not worried about going through the wood of the roof or going through material stuff because you're not material right now. You're just something, your essence right now that's creeping through. There's no hand to look at of your own. There's nothing. There's just what is around you. And as you get above this chantry, you start thinking about this love, not love, but you know, this, this lady who you were talking to, Melissa, and how like she seemed to see the old you, the real you, the small part of the old you that's still in your, in your soul. And you want to see her because that was a warmness, you know, you, 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 that, that, that fleeing image thought potential that you saw in her head of you two having coffee in the morning, sitting in bed comes across. And there's a moment where you find yourself floating and you think that you're going towards her. And then you realize you don't know where she's at. You don't know where this woman is. And there's a second where you feel drawn back into your body again. Like that sadness, that that human emotion wants to pull you back in, but you fight it and you replace that sense of loss with a sense of determination and duty. Because no matter all your faults, Warren, you're a man of duty. That's always first. And so you start thinking and you start thinking of where you're going to meet these two threats to the Chantry and you try to will yourself to go there. And you find your essence floating and you see yourself going over trees and you see yourself going over cars, but you feel your mind start wandering because you can't seem to like find where you need to be. And there's a moment where like you're lost in thought and essence and where you're at. And then you just realize something's changed. There's no trees below you now. There's no cars. There's no world. You look down and it's darkness. You look up. I mean, what's up in this dimension? Is there such thing as up or down or left or right? But you just feel this darkness around you. And when you're sitting there, floating there, when you're simply there, you hear something. And from the horizon, you hear a wave slightly crash. And you look, but you don't see anything. And there's a second where you're looking around and you start feeling this panic like you're drowning because you feel yourself starting to be tugged. And you start fighting it. You feel that you, you, you want to feel that pain of that knife coming through your abdominal now, but you can't feel it because you can't feel anything. And you try to pull yourself from this tide that's pulling you in. And you feel yourself being consumed by this tide. And you hear louder and louder this wave is coming through. And this is one moment when you know that you just can't fight anymore. And you know you're going to be consumed by this wave. And you, at your core, is going to be gone. And at that very moment where you give up, where you almost give up, the sense of Melissa rings through who you are. And you find yourself fighting it even more. And you find yourself starting to slip from this tide that is pulling you in. And at the very last moment where you feel like it's slipping off of you and you feel yourself escape and you feel your essence start rushing through this darkness and you don't know where it's going, but you know it's going towards safety, you look and you see a figure, an onyx figure, a shape of a woman. You can see red seems to come from behind her like a blood red sun. And you see the silhouette of her that is dark. And you see the shape of her breasts and of her hips and of the hair flowing behind her. And you see her arms slowly start extending to her sides. And you see for a second what you imagine to be her mouth opening, which inside of it is red. 
and you start hearing the buzzing of insects. And then you snap into your body and the knife drops from your hands and you are laying there in your bed. Hello, folks. Have you ever wished you could have an easy way to find gameplay videos and podcasts or just media in general that deals with your favorite white wolf role-playing games? Or have you ever wished you could find a forum to share gameplay that you have recorded, one which wouldn't be drowned out by random posts and discussion so that your media could get the attention you want? Well, we have the answer for you in a Facebook group we run called Weight Wolf RPGs Gameplay and Media. The group is specifically ran with the sole intent of it being a one-stop shop for people to view or share media involving the games we all love. We take thorough steps to ensure the page does not become cluttered and is easy to traverse. We are currently over 1,000 members strong, and we are continuing to rapidly grow with new media being shared every day. Stop on by. We hope to see you there. High Level Games, the industry's first choice in taking your games to the next level. We are a podcast blog and new media network at highlevelgames.ca. We have blog posts about all of your favorite games going up five days a week and a podcasting network with actual plays and shows that discuss role-playing games with more rolling out all the time. We are on iTunes, Twitch, and YouTube. Find out more information at highlevelgames.ca, a site that certainly isn't controlled by a shadowy board of directors of otherworldly origin. That's highlevelgames.ca. Please, help. They're coming. Los Angeles metropolitan area is constantly growing and changing. The central district is full of new buildings. The Hollywood and Wilshire districts, once far from downtown, now are part of a which spreads past Beverly Hills and out to the ocean. Why is all this going on in Los Angeles? Why is Los Angeles an exploding city? Neon Masquerade The Demon's Mirror Thirteen Candles Three Chronicles Running Through the Undead Veins of the City of Angels The Esoteric Order of Role Players Actual Play Podcast invites you to drink deeply. Go to eorpodcast.com 
and search the Duets tag to find out more.